passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Will you pray with me? Father God, we praise you today for fulfilling that declaration to build your church. Here we are 2,000 years later, your church. We confess that we're an imperfect church made up of imperfect people, but we ask that your spirit encourage us and guide us and grow us towards Christ-likeness. Prepare our minds to study your word and prepare our hearts to submit to your truth. I pray that your spirit anoints Pastor Ryan in speaking your transformational truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. As Michael so kindly introduced, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to give a warm welcome to our visitors, a warm thank you to Drew and using his entirely own language of describing my mustache as killer. And uh, for those of you who are in the back, if you squint, I promise it is here. I promise. It is my joy to be gathered with you all this morning, and it is actually that idea of gathering that we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. This is our fourth week in our We Are His Workmanship series as we are looking at the collective We Are statements in the Bible and seeking to understand what the various indicatives and metaphors that God's Word has to tell us about the church as the people of God, what it has to tell us and how those metaphors and indicatives instruct us. And so this week, we have We Are His Assembly. Now I want to communicate some things to you up front. This sermon while camping out in Hebrews 12, will be heavy on biblical and systematic theology. All sermons have those two things, or at least they should, but this one will lean heavily in those directions. So I want to admit that to you up front as a way for you to think through this topic with me. Typically, we would expound on one passage for the entire time, kind of going verse by verse, but that is not the case this morning. So I do want to communicate that. Second, this is a bit of a hobby horse for me. Each of us pastors have them, just like I know many of you have some. For Pastor Jeff, it's Molinism and the relationship between God's sovereign plan and man's responsibility. The three associate pastors, through Jeff's sharpening, whether we wanted it or not, can now defend each of our positions in regards to God's sovereignty in a much more robust manner. For Pastor Patrick... It's the importance of spiritual formation and the relationship between the heart and the mind and how that's vital for us to understand as Christians today. 
I share an office wall with him, a thin office wall, I might add. And so we get to think through a lot of these things together, and it's truly awesome. He's also rooting for the Los Angeles Rams in tonight's Super Bowl, so I'll let you be the judge of his personal spiritual formation. (laughs) For Pastor Daniel, he loves thinking through the church and state relations and has a few strong convictions on what God has given the, uh, the government authority to do and not to do. He will be down front if you have any questions after the service. And last and least, my hobby horse is the church, or the study of it, ecclesiology. I love thinking through and discussing what constitutes health in a church and implementing ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. The church reformed, always reforming. What might the church continue to reform in in order to grow as the bride of Christ? And as we turn to this idea of us as God's assembly, I simply want to say that I care about this a lot. I think the act of assembling or us gathering is vital and foundational to Christian growth and maturity, and that to disregard it is perilous and in disobedience to the scriptures. Because as we've seen just over the past two years, for example, when the act of gathering is taken away for a time, there is a real effect on the people of God. In the providence of God, God has redeemed a people unto himself, a people that he instructs to come together, to assemble, to the praise of his glorious grace. And I'm going to flesh out all of those things in this sermon. But when that act of gathering, the act of assembling is taken away, we feel the tangible effects of it. There is something vital missing when the church isn't able to assemble. And so the negative side of our technological age, combined with some of the retraining that has happened over the past couple years, results in that many people have resorted to an online form of church. Now, I have thoughts about all of that, but what I want to simply point out is that this retraining has made it where people now more than ever see assembling as optional. That as long as they have their small group or they tune in online, that that somehow counts and things are just fine. Now, I want to clearly say, these remarks are not directed at those who have serious health concerns or those who are older saints who are shut in or even those who are sick one week and decide to tune in online as a way to not spread sickness. That's responsible. I hope it's clear that I'm by no means addressing you. No, what I'm addressing is our comfort-driven Church must fit in my schedule. It's just easier to watch on TV society that basically just sees the gathering. What we come to do on Sunday morning is either optional or possibly even an annoyance to sit through. If there's anything that COVID has taught the church, in my opinion, is that we cannot underestimate the role that assembling or gathering plays in the life of a Christian because that is what a church in part is, an assembled, redeemed people. So friends, there's a ton in this short passage, and I can't cover everything, but since we're jumping into Hebrews, let me remind you of a brief background. The book is focused on Jesus being our high priest. That is what it is really getting at. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and it is written to encourage Jewish believers to not go back to Judaism, to not return to an old way of life, to not forsake Jesus Christ. And so when you come to chapter 12, many scholars see this chapter and really the section and the few verses that follow as the summary of the entire book. Many words and themes that are discussed elsewhere are repeated here, and it is here that the writer makes clear what is true about the people of God in this new covenant that we are now a part of. Now, normally normally I don't take that long to Uh, introduce the text, so please forgive me, but my aim this morning is for us as disciples of Jesus Christ to understand 
the significance and the importance of what it means to assemble and how us assembling is fundamental to our lives as Christians. So Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read from verses 18 to 24. He tells them, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your church. Thank you that we have the freedom to gather this morning. I simply pray that um, this proclamation will be faithful to your word and that you would have me speak exactly what you would have this congregation to hear and nothing more. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. From Hebrews 12 and the scope of the entire scriptures, I want to highlight the importance of gathering or assembling or, or the church because really it's those three words are, that are synonymous, all coming from the same word, ecclesia, and we're going to look at what that means. But that literally means assembling or gathering, and in the Christian understanding, the church. So what should we see? First is this, God has always gathered a people to himself. God has always gathered a people to himself. This is the biblical theology section for us. But think with me about God for a second. Think to the beginning of your Bibles in more particular. When we think of God from Genesis 1 and 2, we see him creating and filling, creating a good and lush and beautiful garden that he resides in, his very presence is there, and then creating a people to have fellowship with. Not out of necessity, but out of love. So he creates Adam and Eve and he covenants with them by providing them with the blessed life and showing his blessings through his commands. What does the peaceful life look like with him? Now two chapters later, we know that the fall distorts this. But that theme of covenanting together with God, of God drawing a people to himself, continues. So God has to start over because of humanity's sinfulness. And so then a couple chapters later, God calls Noah to himself, and he shows him and his family grace, and he preserves them in the flood. The earth continues to be filled, and then God calls a man named Abram, sets him apart, covenants with him, and promises to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. His offspring find themselves as slaves in Egypt for some 400 years, and then God calls Moses to lead his people out, and it's in the Exodus where we start start to see this idea of assembling start to take more shape, as Israel would assemble before Moses or before God to hear the words of God. This is what we see recounted in the first half of our passage that we just read from Hebrews 12, as the author is reminding us of what it was like to experience Exodus 19 and the Israelites assembling before God. So in verse 18, he's telling them, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, made the Israelites beg 
that no further messages from God be spoken to them. For they could not endure, endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, if an animal goes near it, it too shall be stoned. Such is the holiness of God. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The very Moses who is a friend of God, the very Moses who got to see God's glory pass before him, and he is trembling with fear. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that in this old covenant assembly, they heard from the Lord, but there was still this massive barrier, an infinite gulf between them and God, because their sins had yet to be permanently atoned for. And then after a time of peace with the monarchies, Israel was sent into exile. But even in exile, we see in Nehemiah where the people are to go back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the wall and then assemble as Nehemiah reads from the books of Moses. And the people thank God for his graciousness to them. So in our short biblical theology here, as we look at the Old Testament, we see this connection between God calling a people to himself and those people coming together, assembling, gathering as a means of worship and praise to God. And then as we transition to the New Testament, the temple has been rebuilt and the place of assembling for the people of God is in the synagogue. This is simply a place of instruction, of teaching God's word and a place of prayer. This is normal in Jewish life. We see Jesus teaching there in Luke chapter 4, and in the start of the early church, we see it's normal for Christians to gather and to assemble there. So Acts 19 can say of Paul that he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. As the story continues, we know from the rest of Acts that the early church flourishes It's eventually spreading city by city and also in those cities into larger houses where the church can meet and assemble. So in this short tracing of God's people assembling in the Bible, we see something. Namely, that God's people gather together in order to hear from God, that is to hear from his word and the instruction of it, and then to respond in praise to it. Yet while this idea of assembling is important, I want to hit on for a second of the idea of who assembles. Who is to come together in the church? Because in this point, I stated that God has always gathered a people to himself. And so the question has to come, who is he gathering? It is the blood-bought people of God. Ephesians 2 tells us of the glory of this salvation. Paul tells them, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Jew and Gentile, now a part of the people of God. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Friends, Ephesians 1 and 2 summarizes the gospel for us beautifully. We have sinned before a holy God. And therefore, because of our sin, we can no longer gather with him. We can no longer have fellowship with him like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But God, in his infinite kindness, sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and shed his blood, to be the perfect sacrifice for sin so that we might once more know and have fellowship with him. We can now assemble with God. So as we think through this storyline of Scripture, God, as in his actions with Adam and Noah and Abraham and therefore the Israelites, and now in the new covenant with us, still sovereignly gathers a people to himself. Romans 8 picks up this idea, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has always gathered a people to himself. And the only way to be a part of that gathered people in the new covenant is through Jesus Christ and him alone. Salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Christ and no other way. So we see the reality that God assembles his people, but have you ever asked yourself, what makes this gathering different? You come here on a Sunday morning, what makes the church different? What makes us coming here different from you going to a school board meeting on a different night, or from gathering with your bowling league, or from going to any other organizational meeting? It's because of the gathering of God, the assembly of God's local church is where the people of God meet with God. This is where he has promised his presence to be. This is what Jesus promised to build. This is where the kingdom of heaven assembles on earth. So let me unpack all of those statements. You see, this word for assembly or gathering, as I said earlier, church, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And this word has political overtones. In the centuries before Jesus, it was used in Greek cities to describe a gathering or the assembly of full citizens of that city, of that polis. Citizens who had a say in the life of the city. They would make decisions on judicial and political matters. And then fast forward a couple hundred years to Jesus' day, the word had gained a broader usage to really imply any gathering or any assembly, but the political usage was still very real. As in Acts chapter 19, where the town clerk of Ephesus tells a crowd to bring the charges to the courts, or if the courts don't satisfy their concern, to settle them in the regular assembly or the ecclesia. But the startling fact about all of this is that Jesus could have easily continued the tradition of the synagogue. This was the popular place to meet. Many of the converts to Christianity were obviously Jewish. They knew what the synagogue was. This is where instruction in Jewish life took place, where he even taught, as I said before. But notice this sequence in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, after his baptism and temptation, begins his ministry telling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 5, next chapter, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains what life in the kingdom looks like and who will be able to receive the kingdom. Matthew 6, Jesus tells his followers what it looks like to pray for the kingdom and what it means to seek the kingdom of God. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples on a journey to go and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 12, Jesus performs miracles and binds the strong man, therefore demonstrating the kingdom. 
Matthew 13, he reveals that only disciples can know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And then throughout the rest of Matthew 13, Jesus uses seven parables to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 14 and 15, Jesus does miracle after miracle to prove that the kingdom of heaven is really among them, that it has really come. And then we get to Matthew 16. And this is the passage that Michael read for us in our scripture reading. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my kingdom. No, that's not right. He says, I'm going to build my synagogue. That's not right either. He says, I'm going to build my church, his ecclesia. I'm going to build my assembling, my gathering of God's people, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the astute reader of Matthew has to wonder why this change. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom being proclaimed throughout the book, and then Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my assembly. A kingdom is a political thing, so does he change the subject? He does not. Look at verse 19 again. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. By giving the keys to Peter, it is the Protestant understanding that he's giving those to the apostles, and we would argue in light of the same word usage in Matthew 18 to the church overall. Through his assembly, Christ is building a new political and covenant reality, a new Israel according to Galatians 3. Now with that in mind, let's look back at Hebrews 12. As he contrasts in the first half, the assembling in the old covenant and the fear that takes place, and look what he says in verse 22. You Christians, it's not true of you. You Christians have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Something huge has taken place in redemptive history. That chasm, that infinite gap I mentioned earlier, has now been bridged by the infinite Son of God, Jesus Christ. The chasm has been swallowed up by the cross, and what God does is he draws a people to himself. He does this invisibly. We cannot see the regeneration of the heart, only the subsequent confession and the fruit that comes from the heart. But God gathers a people to himself invisibly, and it is in our local churches that the invisible is made visible as we see and hear and experience the kingdom of God on earth now. So what is taking place here is in one sense old and in another sense completely new. God, as I said, has always been drawing and gathering a people to himself, a people that come together and hear from his word. Yet this new covenant community now has direct access to God because of the blood of Christ. We don't have to fear as the Israelites did. In our union with Christ, we experience a tangible change, a new reality, a truly a new heart that informs and shapes what this life looks like and in turn reveals what the fully consummated kingdom will look like for us. This brings us to our second point. God's church, his assembly is distinct. God's church is distinct. The definition of distinct is to be recognizably different from something else. Recognizably different is what the church is called to be in regards to the world. Yes, we engage the world. Yes, we proclaim truth to a dying world. But we are called to be noticeably different, noticeably distinct. So there are two levels that we need to think through on this. When the word ecclesia is used... 
when Scripture speaks about the church, it typically does so in two ways, the universal and the local. The universal isn't as often, but the universal church is comprised of all believers in Christ spread throughout the world. These are your brothers and sisters here at different churches in town, in other states, in other countries, all through the nations. Our brothers and sisters in various churches who proclaim Christ are part of the universal church. But much more often in the New Testament, ecclesia is used for the local, comprised of believers living in a similar geographic area who covenant together to be a church. So some of the language might be unfamiliar here, so let me explain. From the early church in Acts, through the epistles of Peter, and to the church throughout the last 2,000 years, what sets a truly Christian church apart from any other entity, from any other gathering of people, is that it is marked by two things, the right preaching of God's word and the right practicing of the ordinances. When believers historically come together around those two things, then you have a church, During the Reformation era and after, various Protestant groups saw this and they tried to distill down in their own way through their confessions what it means to be a church. But when you look at all these confessions, when you look at the Lutherans in the Augsburg Confession, the Anglicans in the 39 Articles, the Presbyterians in the Westminster Confession, and the Baptists in the London Confession, all agree on those two fundamental marks of a church, the right preaching of the word and the right practicing of the ordinances. Granted, where all the splits occurs over how to practice the ordinances, but that's a conversation for another day. So when I say that the gathering of God's people, that the gathering of his church is distinct, what I mean is that it is clearly marked from other assemblies by those two things. So some of you have moved and lived in different places, or even if you haven't, you might have had to switch to a different church in a given area. Even here, we're meeting people week after week who have come, and they're trying out different churches, try to figure out where the Lord might have them. And we welcome you who are doing that. There are some great churches in Idaho Falls that would be blessed by you immensely. But historically, what should guide any of us in looking at a church are those two marks. Does the church preach Christ, the whole counsel of God? Does it apply right doctrine to the life of the church And does it faithfully seek to administer baptism and the Lord's Supper? All other things ultimately are secondary to those. So practically speaking, what else should define our gathering? How else is it distinct? I have a few reasons here, and they should be on the screen for you. First is this, the gathering of the church glorifies God. Fundamentally, when we come together, it glorifies God. Ephesians 3 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The gathering of the church also pursues holiness. When Peter was writing to the dispersed churches, he tells them in 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Friends, this doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin. Don't hear me saying that. But this is what I've been reiterating to the youth over the past few weeks in our study of Romans. God's Holy Spirit enables us to resist temptation and to not give in to sin. 
So we are being conformed day by day to the image of Christ and therefore should expect our gathering of saints to be pursuing holiness together. Again, we aren't perfect. One day we will be when Christ comes back, but we aren't perfect yet. But while sin remains in our lives, it no longer reigns in our lives. And we need to be reminded of that. Pursuing holiness together is a part, a distinct part of the assembly of God. It also edifies the saints. The gathering of the church edifies the saints. To edify simply means to build up, to instruct, to encourage, and to shape Christ's people to be more like Christ. Therefore, everything done in our gatherings should be to this end. This is what Colossians 3 is getting at. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, encouraging, teaching, admonishing, Your brothers and sisters with the word of God here is fundamental to what it means to belong. This is in part how we show our love and our care for others. The gathering of the church also evangelizes outsiders. Christians will evangelize throughout the week. Yes, we should be doing that. But our assembling still is a witness to those who don't know Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. If therefore... The whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, when all prophesy, if you speak the word of God clearly, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That is what we hope and unbeliever experiences when they come to gather with us on a Sunday morning, that God is really among us. And lastly, the gathering of the church remembers the Lord and proclaims his death and resurrection. We as a church have decided to do this on the last Sunday of every month, 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All of these things and more occur when we gather together as the people of God. There is something tangible in here happening to one another. And in the same vein, something tangible being proclaimed to those who don't know Christ. Now, someone could easily say, but does this mean that you don't do those things in your individual Christian lives? By no means. I'm not saying that at all. Or to address the popular phrase, the church isn't a place, it's a people. In one sense, that's very true. In another sense, it misses the mark. What's more biblical is to say that the church is a people assembled in a place. Churches have to assemble to be a church. It's in part what makes us the church. The same is true of my kids playing on sports teams. Jed and Blakely are currently playing YMCA basketball. It's a lot of fun to watch them. They have their mother's athleticism, so they do great. But when they're not playing, on the days that they don't have games, they're still a part of the team. Just as we're still part of the church when we aren't assembled. Yet in the same vein, the team comes together, they assemble to play games. That's defining of what it means to be a team. And if they don't ever do that, then one could say that they aren't really a team. The same is true of the church. Churches assemble. And those who don't regularly assemble with the church yet think they are still a part of it, aren't really. You see, God has made us 
to be physical and spiritual beings. Really, we are whole persons. So we shouldn't elevate one side over the other, but rather hold them together. This is fundamental to Christian theology. We believe in a resurrection. We don't believe that we're only gonna be spiritual in heaven for the rest of our lives, but we will be given resurrected bodies. God created us to have both. But the spiritual realities that take place in our gatherings take place precisely because we are physically gathered. They are inextricably linked. The physical gathering, the physical assembly of the congregation is where God's power is displayed and recognized. The church then, friends, is to be set apart and distinct as the bride of Christ. All the local churches, if it's helpful to think of it like this, do it like this. All the local churches around the world are outposts of the kingdom of God, lighthouses that are projecting light into a dark world. And all of us, as we wait, are seeking to be faithful until the Lord returns. And that brings us to our last point. We look forward to an eschatological gathering. We look forward to an eschatological gathering. What I simply mean by eschatological is the end times, when Christ comes back. That is what we believe. We don't believe that Jesus Christ is, came and then left and is gone forever. We believe he is coming back to perfect his people So as Jeff said last week, what does it look like when heaven comes down to earth? That's the assembly or the gathering that we're looking forward to. So in light of that, I want to read our Hebrews passage once more and then put it together with what we see in the book of Revelation. He tells them again in verse 22, But you Christians have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what is true of us now. The writer of Hebrews is using the perfect tense throughout. It is an accomplished reality for us. We have come to the heavenly city, to Mount Zion. We who are enrolled in heaven, we who are united with Jesus, the mediator of our covenant. And his blood doesn't cry out for wrath and redemption like Abel's, but instead satisfies the wrath of God and accomplishes redemption for us. That is our reality now. Yet, we wait. We seek to be faithful. We know that Christ will come once more. We still struggle with sin and its effects. And so we look forward to what one day will be. And in Revelation 19, we see this. As the people of God are rejoicing in their fellowship with God in the age to come, John tells us, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then Revelation, we know, we know, continues into chapter 21. And notice the similar language that we see here in Revelation 21 that we also see in our passage from Hebrews. Look where we get to dwell. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, like it was in the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, we can now gather with God again. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Mount Zion, the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the place where God dwells with his people, all of that is describing what we look forward to. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, we, as the assembly of the firstborn, that is, the assembly of God's people because of Christ, experience a taste of that heavenly reality now when we assemble as his church. We experience a taste of it now, which one day we will experience fully when the universal church is assembled in the new Jerusalem. How awesome is that? So when we gather When we assemble in here on a Sunday morning as God's people, it is a foretaste of that end times gathering, the eschatological gathering of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who are gathered around the throne and proclaiming praises to God. So in light of that, let me close with two application points on how we can apply the importance of us assembling today. I'm sure there are many more, and I trust the Holy Spirit to apply this to our hearts, but two brief points First is this, do you prioritize church? Do you prioritize church? What I mean by that question is, do you prioritize the Sunday gathering in your life? In our Western culture, we are inundated with distractions and consumerism and the appeal of not missing out on something else that could be happening or taking up our time. But for the Christian here today, God has called you to prioritize life in the local church. And fundamental to life in the local church is you being here and gathered with us. So practically speaking, what orders your life? Does work order your life? Do kids' activities order your life? What is most important in your week? And then what takes second fiddle to that? Fathers, do you lead your families in such a way that they know and understand why is it important to gather with God's people? Your children are watching. They're going to see what you prioritize day after day, week after week, and then they will prioritize that in their lives as well. So is the church what's being sacrificed on the altar, or is it the foundation of your family's week? Does your family's week actually start with Sunday? That's the most important, and everything else that you have to do flows from that. The point here, don't hear me wrong, please. The point here is not that attending church makes you a Christian. That is not the point. The point is that attending church, gathering with God's people, is what Christians do. So don't forsake it. Immediately after the writer of Hebrews states in chapter 10 to not forsake the gathering, he follows it up with the judgment of God. There are eternal implications at stake here. The second is this, do you minister in the church? Do you minister in the church? I use the word minister instead of serve here intentionally. Do you minister in the church? What do I mean? Well, in Matthew 16, when Christ said that he would build his church, there's an implication there. He will build it. 
As Paul later tells us, he gave, he gave us apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So Christ will build his church, and then he provides it with certain leaders to aid and facilitate that growth. But friends, if you're a part of the new covenant, if you're in here and you know Jesus Christ, that means that you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore you are called to minister within the church. This was the promise hinted at in the Old Covenant that the New Covenant now makes a reality for us. When we come to Christ, we are united to him. He makes us a kingdom of priests. So that promised reality of the New Covenant is that we can all know the Lord, from the least of us to the greatest. It's not just an analogy to make us feel better, but an objective reality. We have a job to do. So where is the temple of God today? It's in the church. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, Paul tells the Corinthians. And just as a priest was to serve in the temple in the Old Testament, so we as a kingdom of priests should be serving one another in the new temple, his church. So what the New Testament reveals about us is that the job of every member of the new covenant is to be a teacher, to be a minister to one another. We can all encourage one another. We can all teach one another. We can all point one another to scripture. This is in part the blessing and the beauty of the church. Knowing that your brother or sister over there is grieving and coming alongside them in the midst of it to minister to them. Rejoicing over another at the growth that God has brought about in their life. The mature coming alongside those who need help maturing. The beauty of this temple compared to the old is that God's spirit has been given to us, enabling us and gifting us to minister to one another. So how are you doing that? If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been gifted by God's spirit to bless others in the church. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you know Christ, you understand that a new heart, has, a change has taken place, a new heart has been given to you, then you have been gifted by God's spirit to bless others in the church. And so I pray that we would do that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that we as your assembled people, we as your gathered church can come together to hear from your word and what a blessing that is. God, we know that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, apply this word to our hearts and our minds, and you bring about sanctification in our lives. But God, as I said earlier, the only way that somebody can have fellowship with you, the only way that somebody can once more be gathered to you or to assemble with you is through Jesus Christ. So for those here who don't know you, who recognize that they are still dead in their sins, God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd bring about conviction, that you would regenerate their heart, they might place their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And for the rest of us, Father, you have given us a commission. We understand that the kingdom of heaven on earth is happening through local churches spread throughout the nations, Father, so help us to grow, help us to minister and to serve one another. Help us to recognize the gifts that you have given to us, and may we be faithful to use them. We love you, God. We praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.